set it up, set it up, set it up. Okay, now pray. And when they start praying, it's like, the roof just goes crazy. And then they just go and they went for like five minutes. And then at the end of that, some guy with a bell four times that big stood up in the front and did that. And they all got quiet. It was like, so I thought, hey, that could work. (laughs) All right. Now, I've got the minty code up there. Remember, what are the hard questions about religion? You're helping me get ready for the next lesson. You can see we're going to be talking about that today, or you'll see in a moment we're going to be talking about that together today as well. So since the pandemic, uh, we've had quite a few new folks join us. So it's been a lot of fun. We've gotten to hear new stories. We've got to figure out why it is that people are interested in spirituality, why they're they're interested in community. And some of the folks who have found us along the way are kind of at the one last try before I totally give up on religion stage of the journey. Other people uh, are at the, I've never really considered religion. Maybe it's not the wasteland that I thought it was. And so it's been fun getting to know new people. It's been fun getting to hear different stories. And when I meet people, I might have done that with you. I usually ask folks, have you read the website? And usually people have. And then I'll usually say something snarky like, and you came anyway. What is wrong with you? Are you a heretic? (laughs) Now, as you're going to hear today, I don't really think we're heretics, but we have deconstructed our approach to religion considerably. We've gone back into the whole of our tradition's narrative, and we've found that there are many ways to tell our story, and we've kind of highlighted some of the ways that don't commonly get highlighted. So I say heretic to help adjust people's expectations, because religion comes with expectations. Religion comes with assumptions. So we've been tinkering and we've been highlighting different parts of the story. Well, I mentioned that in Thursday's uh, email and I embedded a link for the same one that I'm doing with this mentee post here. Uh, What are your big questions about religion? What are the things that are struggles for you, the troubling things, the difficult things? Thank you, those who sent stuff uh, this week. I've been gathering them already. Um, And the new lesson really is, by that title, Are We Christian? Are we really, really Christian? So Megan, who's kind of new, she's posted this question. She said, um, by the way, she's not here this morning. She just sent me a text this morning, said she's going to be watching at home. So say good morning, Megan. So she said, how can we be Christian without a checklist? How can we be Christian without a list of the beliefs that qualify us for being Christian? The stuff that you've got to believe to be Christian. We don't seem to have that. Come on, what's going on here? Which made me smile because it's a great question. (laughs) A similar one came up at our last newcomer lunch. The the question was, are we a Christian church? Are we really? Because I don't think we are because I know what Christian church is and we're not that. So, Easter an important day for Christian churches, a great time to start asking the question, are we? Are we a Christian church? Are we Christian people? Now, Easter is troublesome. It always has been. Paul called it a stumbling block way back when. Now, it's troublesome if you're inside the church bubble. It's troublesome if you're outside the church bubble. Inside, you're thinking, oh, that's some kind of crazy. Uh, If you're outside the bubble, that's crazy magic thinking. If you're inside the bubble, it's, whoa, don't mess with Easter. Inside the bubble, we might doubt that there's a hell to go to, but if you mess with Easter, you're going for sure. So (laughs) let's think about Easter. Uh, And let's start where we've done, uh, where we started with many things before, 1859 and 1871. Let's start with Darwin. (laughs) Let's start with the origin of species and let's start with the descent of man, which said basically, good church folk, everything you know is wrong. Good church folk, thank you for telling your framing narrative for as many years as you have told it to us. For all those centuries that kind of stitched us together, thank you, but we don't need your story anymore. We've got a new one. And of course, good church folk reacted and started a movement, and that movement still echoes today. It was and it remains an us versus them movement, an in versus out movement. 
Now, to be fair to those good folks in the late 1800s, the Roman church had done something very similar back in the 4th and 5th centuries. They weren't the first to do this, but too much history in one lesson, we would never get to lunch. <laughs> now, that said, us versus them, I am pretty sure was not their intent. These were good people, they were devout people, they were pious people. They probably would have called it guarding something that is precious. But, as happens, unintended consequences. What they did is they wrote up a list called the Essential Fundamentals. Now, what you, this is, was a list of the things that you've got to believe to stay true to the Christian tradition, and there were 14 things on that list, which inadvertently created us. The line in the sand list that Megan was asking about, where is the list? Where is the line? They inadvertently created that list. If you could assent to the list, you were on this side of the line. If you could not assent, could not believe in, then you were on that side. Us, them. And following on that, entrenching. Following on that, friends and enemies. Following on that, in-group and out-group. And here we are, 120 years later, still working in that same framework. Now, we're adding in the extra crazy that comes with social media, and we're kind of tearing the house down. Us, them, in, out. Now, here's the thing. In our tradition, we've had two primary ways of telling the Easter story. And when we devised those 14 essentials, we only chose one of those. And then we said, this is the one you've got to believe if you're going to be in, not out. That's a lot of pressure because spirituality is a deep part of us. And spiritual community is a precious commodity. And lose it, and we do lose something meaningful, and we lose something important. And if you can't believe something on the list, especially this doctrine about Easter, literal and physical is what the doctrine is called, then you're not on the team. And you're out. And that is a significant loss. A loss I've experienced personally. But here's the thing. The good folks who drew up that list of the 14 points, they were products of the worldview of their time. And theirs was a time of heady scientific discovery, heady scientific inquiry. Western society was on an inexorable march toward reason. Great leaps forward in understanding. Great leaps forward, leaving superstition behind, banishing medieval ignorance, working hard to build their world and to build their religion on reason and on logic and on rational understanding. So when they told their religious stories, they couldn't help but fit those religious stories into the worldview that they were forking with. So two Easter stories to choose from, they chose the one that fit into their worldview. Because one of those, the one they didn't choose, was really kind of fuzzy. The one they didn't choose was a little bit vague. The one they didn't choose was awfully contradictory. But it was also a little bit magical. The one that they didn't choose was filled with a lot of surprise and a little bit of bewilderment. And that story, people glimpsed something, but they couldn't explain it very well. And in a world where you're trying to explain everything very well, that story didn't fit. It didn't seem that those people could get a grasp on what they had experienced. Now, something had impacted them, yes, and it seemed to have undercut some very deep primal fears that we all carry, but their words were so vague, almost magical sounding. Words like perishable, clothed in the imperishable. What, what does that actually even mean? Death swallowed by life. What, what, what exactly are you talking about? Explain that to us. And worse, that story 
when it was told, had all kinds of impossible contradictions built right in. It was a physical experience, they told us. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It was a vision experience. It was an understandable experience, they wrote to us. Oh, no, no, it wasn't really an understandable experience. After all, it was an incomprehensible one. And that story, people were trying to capture an experience, something that happened to them that was bigger than the language they had to contain it. Something had broken loose in their categories of understanding. Something that was kind of boundless, kind of vast, something that didn't lend itself to words. So, when they tried to put them into words, their experiences, it just ended up sounding weird. Certainly not consistent with a society that is trying to pin everything down in clean, understandableness. Now, the second story, that was much better for the folks living in 1898. It was much easier because the primary concern of the second story was, let's try to explain clearly what happened to Jesus' body. Let's try and make sense of a really big miracle. The cultural priority of that time was to make the world as reasonable as possible and was bent toward getting rid of as much magical thinking, as much vague thinking, as much fuzzy thinking as possible to make everything as understandable as we can make it. So they gravitated to the story that made the fuzzy parts less fuzzy. They gravitated to the story that made the bewildering parts less bewildering. They left out a lot of the inconsistencies. They reduced the volume of troubling parts in the telling of the story. What they tended to do was just reduce the story down to just one really big troubling part. Admit that was a big one. In the big one, a dead man comes alive. Now, all the other parts of the story got a cleanup. They all became very tidy and very understandable and all very coherent. It was just that one big miracle. Jesus' body, once dead, now resuscitated. Dead Jesus, heart stopped, brain waves stopped waving. Then, third day, miracle, heart starts beating again, stretches out his arms, takes off the grave clothes, gets up, walks out of the grave. A miracle to be sure, but just one. Then, once the story was kind of framed in a more comprehensible, tidier way, we could take those practicalities and stitch them together into a meaning-making story. And if you like theology words, and who doesn't, <laughs> the words are vicarious atonement. In other words, God puts all of the sins of all of the human beings onto Jesus, and when his body comes alive again, those sins are vanquished. Now, when we were creating our 14 essential points list, that story became one of the 14. In fact, it maybe became the most important one. You've got to believe it if you want to be in. You've got to believe it if you want to belong. And it worked for as long as it did work because there is a lot in that story that we can grow in, develop in, understand ourselves in. It also worked for as long as it did because it was solid, and solid doctrines feel safe. When we've got a solid set of things that we can believe in, that feels secure, and it feels stable, and it has a bonding effect because when everybody believes the same thing and everybody says the same things, cohesion, solidarity. Us versus them sounds really bad. But when you're part of us, it feels pretty wonderful. So it took a while. But eventually we began to realize that we had lost something. The stuff that we left out in the first story is really important stuff. And yes, we made everything tidy. We made everything solid, which again felt good, but a problem. And the problem is that the Easter story just is ambiguous. It is fuzzy. It's weird and it is uncontained. And even though the sanitized version, the doctrine version, felt good, we lost something essential. 
Now here's some parenthetical remarks on the important thing about religion. Religion doesn't last because it has tidy doctrines. It doesn't last even because those doctrines do have a bonding effect that knit us together. Religion remains generation after generation because it has a special superpower. And I promise you the doctrines are not the special superpower. What religion has is the power to point us toward experience. The superpower of religion is experience. When religion is at its best, it points us there. It points us to the experience that you have and the experience that I have. Religious points us to our own internal transformation. Religion points us to our own access to the interior light. When we say those words, they're not doctrinal words. They are experiential words. They point us to the capacity that we all have inside of ourselves to love selflessly and to serve and to make the world a better place because that is within us because we are, every one of us, carriers of the inner light. Religion lasts because generation after generation, even when religion loses its way, as it is losing its way right now, someone in each generation rediscovers that, rediscovers that there is experience embedded in our stories. That's why religion lasts, because it keeps pointing us back to experience. Well, in this particular story, our Easter story, there's something that the 14-point version of the story misses. One of the primary things that it misses is surprise. It misses surprise. The Easter story that we left behind after 1898 points us to the anticipation of, the expectation of, surprise. It points us to the expectation of a fundamental upending of things. A fundamental upending of things that brings about surprise. It points us to the expectation of upending the categories of what we think is possible. Surprise. It points us to the expectation of our embedded assumptions about life and death being shattered our embedded assumptions about saints and sinners, in and out, us and them, all of those things being broken down, it points us to, well, now that's surprising. <laughs> Fixed categories of the most fundamental kind. <laughs> the story of Easter is a story of surprise. And when we make it a doctrine, we miss that. When it's solid, when it's pinned down, when it's tidy, yep, it feels safe. We all feel like we're on the same page together. But here's what doctrines do not do. Surprise. For a doctrine religion to work, here's all you got to do. You got to go get some in religious instruction. And somebody will tell you what the team believes. And somebody will tell you, you should take notes now. You're going to have to say this back. And then you will. You'll say it back. You'll say back what you've heard. And when you say back what you heard, you're going to get all kinds of positive reinforcement and you're going to feel like you belong and you're going to feel like you're in. That's all it takes to belong in a doctrinal religion. And again, that can feel very wonderful. But here's what you lose. We lose something precious. Doctrines don't break us free from our stuck points. That happens in experience. Doctrines don't blow our minds with a glimpse of a reality bigger than we had imagined, bigger than we had narrowed down. They don't tell us to expect that our minds are going to be blown and that we ought to be looking for it and anticipating it and be ready for it when it happens. That's what religion does when it's at its best. That's what Easter did for those who experienced it the first time a long, long time ago. Now, I don't know what happened on that first Easter. I used to know. Now I don't know anymore. <laughs> Maybe it was a vision. It was for Paul. 
Maybe it was breakfast on the beach. That's how John wrote about it. But getting that right doesn't really matter to me much anymore because here's what matters. It matters that the story points us to our own anticipation of surprise. Here's what matters to me now, that that story for those people a long time ago, it's also my story. Their surprise, their too-big-to-be-contained story, that's my story too. Now, I don't know what they experienced, but I do realize it changed everything for them. And I've watched through history how that same awakening story has changed things for so many generations throughout history. It told them to look for something. And it tells me to look for that something as well. And the thing that it tells me to look for is first-hand encounter, not a second-hand doctrine. To look for, and we tend to find what we look for, how many times have we said that? To look for a reality that's bigger than the one that we live in. Bigger than the eyes down, focus on the to-do list, reality that contains most of our days. Look for something bigger. More than the default reductionist eyes down approach. The things that we usually take to life, the big distractions of life, look for a way of being, and now all of a sudden these fuzzy words start to be much more effective than the, vi- than the very concise words. Look for things like inner light. What does that even mean? But it does become an important pointer when we are about experience. When we talk about the inner light, we're capturing the previous experience of those who've gone before, who've had this surprising experience, who then try and use words to tell it to us, and these are the words that they stumble with. Look for the interior light that is in you. What does divine spirit even mean? What does ground of being mean? They're so vague. But those vague words are what we come up with when we're not trying to pin down a concise, precise doctrine, but we're trying to capture something that we've experienced and tell a story that doesn't really fit in words. In the religion of experience, vague and fuzzy works better. Language designed for a world filled with bones and blood and budgets and to-do lists, that language doesn't work as well. So the Easter story tells us what to expect. Expect surprise. Expect that we, too, will get our own glimpses of a reality that's bigger than we can contain. That we, too, will get glimpses of a light that changes us. That we, too, will find ourselves no longer fearing death or fearing loss or fearing any of the fears that so diminish us. That the thing that has happened in those before us will happen in us. Usually not dramatically, usually incrementally, but dramatic happens from time to time. Easter wasn't a doctrine thing when it began, and it needn't be for us. Instead of pointing us to a list or a line in the sand that says which side we're on, it can point us to an expectation. An expectation that if we have eyes that will be looking, If we will go to the places where often people stumble into, and that's, by the way, what we call working the circle, we can expect surprise. We can expect experience. We can expect to glimpse something bigger. We can expect to not be afraid like they were not afraid. We can expect to not be afraid of Roman oppression the way that they weren't, or Jewish outcasting the way that they weren't. Not be afraid of God, not be afraid of people, not be afraid of loss, not be afraid of gain. Like them, we too can approach life differently. Not afraid of being crucified or crushed or tortured or destroyed. That's what experience does. Like them, we can have our hearts inflamed, and we ought to expect it. That we ought to find ourselves being animated by a love we did not even know existed. By hope and by goodness and forgiveness, we ought to expect that will happen to us. And we ought to look for it 
That's what the Easter story tells us to look for. Like them, we can carry that light that we awaken to, that awakens inside of us and carry it to, like they did, everybody we know, to serve other people and to love other people and to make ours a better world. Not because we should or not because that's what good people are supposed to do, but because we've been awakened. We've been surprised. We've been made alive by experience. Doctrines, sound, stable, and tidy as they are, just can't do that. Religion has the transformative power that it has in us because it can point us to experience. It can tell us where to look and what to look for. Awakening. Now, it may be true in your life as it has been in mine, most of the time that happens slowly. Most of the time, gradually. We work the circle. And so we have these incremental points of awakening, little bit at a time over time. But sometimes it can be raucous. Sometimes it can be dramatic. I've had a handful of those as well. But the point is, whether it happens incrementally or whether it happens dramatically, our religious stories, and especially our Easter story, point us to personal, first-hand experience. So, we keep the mystery, and we keep the messiness. We keep the jumbled, and we keep the confused. We don't settle for a story that lends itself to 14 points on a list. We take back our story of surprise. We take back a fundamentally different vision of the world we live in, and that's how our Easter story began. And that's a story that we can give to our children. Not settling for safe and stable and aligned in the sand. Getting back to a story that changes us so that we love irrationally, so that we care for others, so that we draw deeply from a reality that we did not even know was within us and we bring healing to the wounded and we lift up those who've been beaten down by life. It's kind of an exciting time to be alive right now because you look around so you know in many places our religion is dying. But here's the thing. In other places, we're finding our way again. We're finding our way back to a heritage that's rooted not in a list, but in experience, in first-hand encounter. Now, you know well, we're also rediscovering a whole host of our own spiritual tools that are part of our heritage. We call them in our, in our community, Work in the Circle. It helps us be in the spaces where surprise does happen. And tools, boy, tools are helpful. I have found them invaluable in my life. But it's the story. This story. Today's story. The Easter story that tells us what the tools will do. That tells us what to expect when we do the practices. We can expect to be surprised. We can expect to be awakened to a life that is bigger than fear. And so, indwelling divine, may we be. May our religion point us toward that higher life, that transformed life, that changes everything life, that inspired to love bigger life, more hope, more goodness, more service life. Amen. And happy Easter. So if you would, prepare for your offerings. We all give online now. Um, you could go to the donate button at our website, or if you've saved it into your document, you can do it that way as well. Uh, if you live here in Raleigh, or if you're joining us from far away, we invite you to take an ownership stake in the community, remembering, as we say every time, there is good return on investment when we invest in spiritual community. Because when we give our time and our energy and our love and our dollars to the community, the community takes those resources amplifies them and gives them back to us in the form of an environment in which we thrive and grow and flourish. So once again, go to our website. At the top, there's a donate button.
Now, in a minute, we're going to dismiss all of you online. We're going to do What Are You Thinking here. You've been hearing, starting on May 1st, we're going to start doing What Are You Thinking on Zoom. So, May 1st, please join in. It'll become a thing if we make it a thing. So, here's your chance to invest your time and your energy and love in community and a chance to watch for that return on investment. So, let's dismiss them. If you would, please put your hand on your heart. And let us remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness is within us because the divine spirit is within us. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds, sharing what is already in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with. Amen. God's blessing upon you all. You are dismissed. We are not dismissed.